0: Good morning, Merry Christmas. The kids are dismissed now, so you can make your way to where you gather. It's good to be with you uh, this morning. It's a privilege to be with you uh, this cool, crisp uh, morning. We have been in an Advent series. When we talk about Advent, we're talking about the first coming of Christ, obviously, the birth of Christ. And also, the flip side of that, the second coming of Christ, we've done three installments. The first installment was out of 2 Corinthians 5.21, and we talked about the great exchange. And then last week, we talked about the great humiliation in Philippians 2, 5 to 11. And this morning, I want to complete our little series. Bob will wrap it up next Sunday on the 24th, but my portion of it as the greatest gift and i want you to find i'm going to use john 3:16 a little bit in the introduction but i want you to go to mark 10 32 to 45 because it's where jesus uses his own version of john 3:16 you'll see it in a second but mark 10 32 to 45 so find mark's gospel matthew mark luke john mark uh, being the shortest of the gospel. It's like the USA Today version of the gospels, right? You move quickly through the gospel of Mark, and I, I feel like that I want to explicate Mark 10, 32 to 45, and I want you to see what Jesus said about his coming, his advent. Now, let's begin by just a fact. I love Christmas. I really do. I love this time of year. Um, I love giving gifts. Uh, I think it's important to give gifts out. Jesus said, In Acts 20, verse 35, it's more blessed to give than it is actually to receive. So it's actually better to be the giver than the consumer of the gifts. I actually find it sometimes awkward, you know, when I get gifts, I don't know what to say, I don't know what to do, because I love the giving side of it more than I love the getting side of it, if that makes sense. So I just love the whole thing. God is the consummate giver, um, right? Uh, He is the, the best giver. He gives the best gift. And we see that in John three sixteen. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes on him will have everlasting life. I mean, that's the best gift, the greatest gift. It's why we're celebrating even uh, this morning. I was uh, saved in the mid-'80s. Um, and when I got saved, I mean, I really got a whole dose. You know, some people are, like, halfway filled with the Spirit. You know, I got the whole dose. You know, like, I was, like, crazy. Uh, you'd probably think, wow, that guy's crazy, radical, um, just the way it was. And I stumbled on this guy on TV. I love sports, and so I'm watching sports. you remember in the mid-'80s, there was a guy with multicolored hair, and he wanted to get John 316 in every sporting event. Um, he didn't finish well. Don't look at the latter part of his life. Um, <laughs> He's got three life sentences, uh, actually. He, he never really took advantage of John 3.16, but, um, it, but he was just radical and I wanted to meet him. I just kept seeing him like pop up, like he would be in the end zone and you'd see this guy come out with John 3.16. I was like, man, I gotta meet this guy. So I did. He came to Jacksonville and he was coming through town. Someone knew him. So we got introduced, my roommate and I go hang out with this guy and we don't realize all that's behind this John 3.16, like he's paid. And he's paid per second by these large high net worth donors that he's on live television. So whether it's golf, football, baseball, wherever it is, you know, concerts, like whatever. If he gets airtime on public TV, he got paid per second. So he was pretty motivated, right? Uh, He he was doing it for the, I hope, the sake of the gospel, but maybe not so much. Yeah, a little bit of cash flow coming in there. But I thought he was radical And if I want to meet someone radical, then this John 3.16 guy. And then as you begin to study the scriptures, Luther had it right. He called it the gospel in miniature. I love single verses that say it all. And it's pithy, it's tight, it's well-worded. John 3.16 would be a classic. That's what Luther um, said about John 3.16. It's the gospel in miniature. You saw that in 2 Corinthians five. 21 when we looked at that just a single verse he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him wow it's mind boggling it's beautiful right to to be at the top of a vista of a single verse like that and its impact on on our lives so it's it's wonderful and there are a number of these throughout scripture the one i want to look at today is mark 10:45 that's our where we'll dismount and where we'll land this morning. But it's Jesus' gospel in miniature in his own words, and it even has the advent baked in that. So I want us to take a peek at at Mark's gospel and Jesus' words himself. It's his version of John 3.16. And he says, I'll quote it here, and then we'll read the whole section in a second. I did not come to be served, but to give my life a ransom for many so what we've tried to do in our series is to produce responses in all of us starting with myself so 2 corinthians 5 21 it's hard to not leave that text and have an attitude of extreme gratitude uh, for the propitiation of sin for for christ covering our sin and exchanging his righteousness for our sin i mean it's hard not to be grateful this time of year right and last week, I mean, it was sobering. It, 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 it was, you know, pride crushing, you know, and we leave with the virtue of humility. Like we got to add that virtue and, and we all have pride. And so we all have to keep putting our, making ourselves low, get low, um, get low. And, and, uh, the other day I was meeting was some church planters and the guy that was leading them kept saying, Hey guys, work hard, get low, get low. You know, that was his kind of football call, you know, get low. You know blue 35 right you know and it was like get low so i mean it's what we have to do and that's what when you leave second Corinthians, uh philippians 2 5 to 11 you you have to get low i mean you have to learn to humble your pride i have to learn to humble my pride and it's a little bit like if you've ever been to chuck e cheese they have this game in there it's abysmal called whack-a-mole right and you have this big hammer with a big pad on the end and these moles pop up and you whack them and then you gotta whack so many moles in so much time. Well, that's a lot like our pride. It's a whack a mole game. You know, you bang here and you're like, man, that wasn't too bad. I got rid of that. And then pops up again over here. So it keeps surfacing in all the dimensions of our lives. And it's, it's just a strong reminder that Christ's example should be, you shouldn't humble our pride, right? It, it, we should get humble. We should be low there. And so now we're at Mark 10 45. And the emotion of awe is something I want you to see. It's something I want to draw attention to in this first section. That's why I picked up the whole flow so that you can see what's going on. There are three Advent realities I want you to see in this passage. First, I'm going to tell you the outline up front, and then we're going to go read it and jump in, okay? First, I want you to see the amazing gift that it is. Second, I want you to see that it's an ambition-killing gift We'll see what the disciples do in a second. And third, it's in a total atoning gift. That's why I can say to you this morning, I can commend in this Christmas season that it is the greatest gift that ever was given was from God to us and giving his son, his one and only son and crushing him for our sin. That is absolutely crazy. And I want you to see and to kind of feel it. So let's read the text. I'll give you a couple pieces of context. And we'll get busy and get going, okay? Join me, Mark 10:32. And they were on the road, going up to Jerusalem. It's about a 25-mile hike. has some hills in there. And Jesus was walking ahead of them you might want to write that down was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. They were astonished. And those who followed were also afraid. And taking the 12 again, pulling them aside, he began to tell them what was about to go down, what was about to happen, saying, see, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to chief priests and scribes. They will condemn him to death, and then they're going to deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, spit on him, Flog him, kill him. That's all shorthand from Isaiah 53. And after three days, though, he's going to rise. Look what comes next. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, a.k.a. sons of thunder, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, hey, if we're going and you're setting up kingdom, we we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do, you, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, hey, this is good. Appreciate the response. Grant us to sit one at the right hand and the other on the left hand in your glory. Jesus said to him to them, you do not even know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism for which I am baptized? And they said to him, ah, yeah. We're killing it. We're able. And Jesus said, really? The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism which I which am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left hand is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, so two were speaking up, but the other ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus grouped them up again. It's a huddle. He calls them, hey, get in close. Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of Gentiles, they lord it over people. And their great ones are known to exercise authority over everyone. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you, guess what? It's going to be your servant. And whoever be first among you will actually be your doulos, your slave and slave of all. And here's the dismount. Here's John 3:16 in Mark's gospel. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. And awe, ambition, atonement. That's how we're gonna frame it up. Now, a couple pieces of uh, context that are very important. This is the third occasion, okay, began back in chapter 8, the third occasion that Jesus pulls his disciples aside and said, hey, we're going to Jerusalem, and I'm going to die. They are not connecting the dots. They're struggling with that. They think he's going to Jerusalem to be the warrior king. He's coming, as Isaiah 53 says, as a suffering servant. Very different. So, Their whole world is about to get totally turned upside down. They are misunderstanding what is actually the purpose for Jesus to go the 25 more miles to uh, Jerusalem. So this is the third and final prediction that he will die. Second piece of context. This is the final um, piece of his one-on-one discipleship. He's been walking for a long time. It's lectures by walking. He'd pause every once in a while and he would teach them. So this is his one-on-one intensive time with his disciples. It actually began in in chapter 8, verse 2, and it ends in Mark 10, verse 45. After that, his public ministry will end for Mark's gospel and everything will move into the Passion Week, into the death and resurrection. And Mark ends rather abruptly, as you know. So in context, this is his last chance to do kind of one-on-one intentional discipleship, which began back in chapter 8. And he's been telling them, this is what it's going to cost you to follow Jesus. And you can see by their response and their ambition, they're not, it's not sinking in. Uh, this is quite opposite of what they should be thinking and the questions they're asking and they should be asking, they're not asking. And so you can sense that in this very text, okay? And so this is his one-on-one walking lecture with his disciples. His public ministry will end here. It's crazy. And move into the Passion Week and crucifixion. And now he also, third piece, he tells them why he's going. He is crystal clear. He couldn't be more succinct more pithy, more helpful. I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. And I'm going to show you because I'm going to give my life a ransom for many. Jesus was born at Christmas, the advent to die. He is on single mission. He's determined as you're about to see in this passage to fulfill the Father's will and he's about to demonstrate that. So, three realities First reality, write it down. I want you to see that it's an amazing gift or an astonishing gift. The word amazement, wonder, was in what Bob read this morning in Luke 2, okay? So it's there, being amazed at Christmas, being astonished at Christmas. Why? Because what Christ is going to do And what he does for us, the work of Christ on the cross, should regularly, listen to this, regularly produce awe. It should be astounding to us. The familiarity gets us in trouble, right? Familiarity breeds what? Contempt. Yeah, that's why we do the Lord's Supper every uh, first weekend of the month. We could do it every single week. Why? Because we have a tendency to forget. We have a tendency to get comfortable and, and just not even appreciate the miraculous. I know I do, and I think you might. It takes too much for us these days to get astonished. And astonishment or awe is an emotion that Advent should produce in all of our lives. That's why I wanted you to know it's an amazing gift and it should produce this astonishment. When was the last time you have been astonished by something? Maybe just reading the word of God for yourself and you've you've looked at it and you're like, wow, I'm blown away at the kindness and love and mercy of God. I think Habakkuk said it well. Listen to Habakkuk 1.5. Habakkuk says, look among the nations, observe, be astonished, wonder, because I am doing something in your days that you will not even believe if you were told about it if you were even told about it you wouldn't believe it it is absolutely astonishing and so let's just agree to this morning in our first step into the reality of the advent let's just agree we need to be more astonished we need to hear this we all need to hear this Well, they're on the road to jerusalem 25 mile walk to the holy city it's a long walk Jesus loved lectures by walking. If you trace him through Mark or any of the Gospels, he was always walking and he was always lecturing. It. It's sometimes good, even when you're discipling men in the church or discipling women in the church. It probably is good to just go for a walk, you know, kind of change the setting a little bit, get get clean. He can point to trees. He could point to agriculture, and, and 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 you know, do certain things with with his environment. And so. He really deployed this means of discipling these 12. Remember, he's prepping them to take the gospel forward, right? To change the world. He's going to invest time with these, particularly with these 12 men. And so it was discipleship by walking. Well, did you notice right out of the gate in verse 32? Where's Jesus? They're all walking. They're in a group. There's 12, right? There's some other people on the fringe that are kind of, you know, like, like a bug zapper draws bugs to the light. Light draws bugs. And there's people around the perimeter. But the 12 is his, <clears throat> his focused, And where's Jesus? Did you notice it? He's out in front. He's leading. He's way out in front. I mean, they're lagging behind. And it's partly because of the conversation, the theology, which we'll see in a second. And partly they're, they're dragging their feet a little bit. Right? They're hesitant. They're not eager. Jesus is riveted. He is focused He's determined. He's going to do the Father's will. I mean, he is just absolutely focused. Is that not what the prophet Isaiah said? Isaiah 50, verse 7. He set his face towards Jerusalem like a flint. Like he's head down, beady-eyed, razor-focused, intense, and he's out in front of them, determined to fulfill his unique mission. He knew the mission. The others, not so much. They haven't, it hasn't quite clicked. They've heard it. This is the third occasion. We could go back and look at chapter eight and chapter nine. He keeps saying, hey guys, we're going, this isn't going to party. We're not setting up a kingdom. There's not going to be 12 like thrones and a guy on the right and the guy, we're not doing any of this. I'm going to be brutally killed and I'm determined to do it because I'm doing the father's will. They're dragging their feet. A, they don't understand it. And B, they're a little bit reluctant. So you have this little phrase in it, and some of them are afraid. Like, is this really going down there? Like, some are kind of getting it, some aren't. Like, any group of people, like, some are on and dotting the I's and crossing the T's. Some aren't so much. They're a little sloppy with their theology, so they're trying to figure it out. So the 12 are lagging behind, like prisoners being dragged to the gallows. I think just from over understanding Mark and spending so many, a year and a half in it, I, I really do believe that they're, they're slow rolling this thing. They're kind of going the 25 miles, but they're kind of like, man, when we get there, something's going to happen. Either we're setting up a kingdom or we're going to war. You know what I'm saying? So there's a little bit of like intrepidation. Maybe that's the best word we could borrow. There's intrepidation there. And they're, they're astonished, right? Look at the text. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Jesus is walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. At everything he's been saying since chapter eight, they're getting their minds blown. Why? Because everything he says is so countercultural, it's so opposite, it's paradoxical, right? The way up, you wanna be great? Awesome, good question. You wanna be great? Get low. Everything he says is the exact opposite of the world and the culture around them. He's just saying, flip the script, boys. My kingdom is not that. My kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. My kingdom is entirely different from what you are thinking. So they're slow rolling in this thing. Some have got some fear. Some are having their minds blown. All these emotions are reflected here in these first five verses of, of this section. And it's some of our emotions, right? Sometimes at Christmas, some people would... it's hard on them. And and some people it's, it's astonishing and amazing and mind blowing. And some it's fearful. Like, am I right with God? And we have the same kind of emotions, but you have to grasp what Jesus was trying to tell them. He's saying, I'm going to be crucified. And he takes it head on. That's what I love. He, He just puts his chin into it, you know, he knows the just has to die for the unjust. We saw that in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He is focused on serving others. Some are astonished, some are not. Now, living with Jesus had to be astounding, right? I mean, they'd been with him for about three and a half years, just shy of three and a half years at this point. It had to be astounding. They had seen a lot. It takes a lot to get us astounded. They had seen actually a lot of astounding things. Matter of fact, Mark picks this up and traces it all the way through Mark. He is continually astounding. Let's just go on a little jet tour, real quick. Just a couple of verses. Join me in chapter one. And I want you to see how astounding Jesus was to, to Mark and how it should be to us in the spirit of Habakkuk. Check out Mark 122. 122. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as those crazy religious scribes. That's Dan's version, that's DSV. (laughs) 212, look at 212, flip over, go right. Look at 212. And he arose, he immediately picked up his bed and went out before them. So it's the healing of the paralytic. So that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we've never seen anything like this. So Jesus' presence on earth is producing miraculous, miracles all around him. They're encountering him for the first time. This is astonishing. This is astonishing. Look at 542. A couple more chapters over. And immediately the girl got up and began walking. For she was 12 years old. And they were immediately overcome with Amazement. Amazement. 6-2. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hand? Is not this the carpenter's boy? (laughs) And so that goes on for 10 more times, including our passage in, in Mark chapter 10. When you think of Christmas, when you think of Advent, the emotion I want you to make sure that you are participating is in is amazement, astonishment, awe. Dr. Tripp has a whole book on it. It's a little yellow book called Awe. It'd be good for you to pick up and read. Awe, A-W-E. You, this is the reaction when you encounter Christ, both for the first time which I did in June 22nd, 1986, to today, I am constantly in awe as I read the scriptures. Read the scriptures with that emotion in play. Don't read it wooden, read it like like you're reading it for the first time. You know, treat this Christmas with your families and your spouse as if this was your first Christmas and bring about the awe. I think sometimes our familiarity, because you are a well-taught congregation, you love your Bibles, like I love my Bible, but you can get a little bit of familiarity going and you lose your awe. Don't lose your awe. Fight for awe. Awe matters. We're, we're astonished. And I do appreciate Mark. Now he's fast. He's a little wild and crazy. And he writes the USA Today version of the gospel. But I'm telling you, he, he runs that thread. He just puts it all the way through like a nice stitch on a beautiful hoodie on a winter day. He just kind of stitches it all the way through, astonished, aw, freaked out. What is that, what is, where did you get this stuff? Isn't that the carpenter's boy? Like, it's just mind-boggling to him. I would want that for you. Fight for, fight against familiarity, you know? Always find, I love the letters as a preacher because they're clean, they're easy to preach, they're packaged nicely, but... You gotta live in the gospels, folks. You gotta always have one foot, one foot in the gospel. I'm gonna split and hurt myself. Uh, one foot in the gospel, right? one foot in all, all over the scripture, Old Testament, New Testament. All. But I'm always like, I'm always kind of staying close to the gospels because it's how Jesus thought. And it was so game-changing. It was so paradoxical. It was so counterintuitive. It was all of those things. And at Christmas, you just need to shake it up a little bit. You know, you need to mix it up a little bit. We need to be astounded by what Jesus has done in his birth and in his death and in his resurrection. So I hope you won't get complacent. You know, it was the Apostle Paul's one fear in life. He had one fear. He said in 2 Corinthians eleven three, 3, he said, I fear that I would be so easily taken and drawn away from the simplicity and devotion to Jesus Christ. So I know that you love your Bibles, and I know you're studying your Bibles, and you're going deeper and deeper in your Bibles, but don't lose the simplicity and devotion of being head over heels in love with Jesus. Try to recapture that back, you know, uh, this Christmas. Keep the amazement there, right? And that's what Advent's all about. That's why we've been hammering away these these last couple weeks, right, Jesus is coming. They're thinking he's setting up as warrior king. He's saying, I'm not coming as a warrior king this time. I'm coming. I'm coming back a second time, second advent. But this time I'm coming as a suffering servant to die for you. Please do not get over the reality of what he has done for you. Well, it continues. Look at some of the details there back in Mark chapter 10. So he draws them together he brings them in close, he's t- teaching his 12. He's not concerned about the perimeter. They can eavesdrop and they can learn, no, no biggie. You know, he's not pushing them off, but he's focused on 12. And he says, listen, we're gonna go up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests. So the religious elite, he's gonna be handed over to the very people that should be in awe. And at times have been in awe, but they're not here. He said they're going to condemn him to death, and he's going to be handed over to the Gentiles because the Sanhedrin couldn't bring about a conviction for him. They had to hand him over to the Gentiles to a Roman cross. And then he uses those four verbs, and this is what's astounding. It's it's really Isaiah 53 packaged tightly. Look at those four verbs in verse 34 and they will mock him, spit, flog, and kill him. That's the gospel. That's John three sixteen, that's Mark ten forty five. That's it wasn't like, you know, he's just gonna it's gonna be an afternoon gig, nine to five. You know, he's gonna be two to four. No, no, this is staggering cruelty. The best that they could engineer these Romans, the best that they could come up with is how to kill him, and they're gonna mock, spit, scourge, and kill on the one person who lived the perfect life and died for their sins. Right. In other words, the disciples, the emotion I want you to feel in transition is the disciples should be aghast. The third time he's told them, I'm going to die. They should have been stunned, like on their heels a little bit going, hold on. We can stop this. I mean, you, you guys, some of you guys, you, got, you know, you're real men, you want to go. Let's go to war. Really? Let's go to Jerusalem. We're going to, we're armoring up. We're going to gird up our loins. We're going to take this thing on. They should have been aghast. And he said, third day, I'm going to rise. So he gives the whole picture of the gospel. They should have been upset. They should have been aghast. But I want you to see the second reality of Advent, and I want you to see their response to this understanding. Third time. And it draws us to our second reality that the gift that you're experiencing, Advent, should be ambition-killing It's an ambition killing gift. They have misplaced ambition. They should have been aghast, right? They should have been upset, right? About his brutal death. And they're worried about themselves. They're worried about, hold on, then what are we we doing here? And James and John, verse 35, we're introduced to this Ambition killing section and James and John the sons of Zebedee came up to him and said, "Hey, teacher, can you do something for us? Do you not sense in the text a little bit of tone deafness, <laughs> a, a little bit of misplaced priorities, uh, uh, misplaced ambition? Now let me say a couple things about ambition. Ambition's not bad. Um, it isn't. If it, it's." for the good of others and the glory of God, then it actually can be what we call redeemed ambition. In other words, if I were your pastor, I would be wanting you to be ambitious for the gospel. I'd be wanting you to be ambitious for your community. I'd be wanting you to be ambitious for your schoolmates and your consortiums. And I'd want you to, I'd want that, you know. The difference is how you get there. You get there by being a servant. You don't get there by being lording it over people, right? So Jesus just flips the script. It's not a bad question, ill-timed, But it is the right question. How do I get, how do I lead well? How do I, how do I be great? How do I get ambitious? He never condemned them for the question. He condemned them on how they get there. They're all jacked up on how they get there. Like, okay, we're going to go in. We're going to flex. We're going to kill things. He's like, no, we're going to go in. We're going to serve. We're going to be slaves. It's going to do the opposite. He says, not so for you. He says later in the chapter, right? Not so for you guys. And so basically, they have this misplaced ambition. And so they ask Jesus to write a check he can't cash. They ask him to do something for them. So he's saying, I'm going to town. Just think about this. You're at Christmas. Someone's in your house, a guest. And they say, look, I'm going to die. And you say, hey, you want a candy cane? It's just, it doesn't work. Like, it's like, wow, what are you, you're not, you not, Getting this? Like it's just crazy. It's like dumb. Don't don't talk like this. Now, we know James and John, right? They are the sons of Zebedee. They're Zebedee's boys. Everybody call them Zebedee's boys or aka the sons of thunder. These guys were always up to something. You know, they were they were constantly in trouble. And so Luke, which you don't know, if you were looking at Luke's passage, which is parallel to this, his mom's there too. So their mama's boys, and the mama asked the question through them. Because they're too scared to ask the question so they get mama to do it, Luke says. So what they're doing is they're fantasizing. Okay, we're going to Jerusalem. He's setting up his kingdom. It's going down. They need leaders. We're the best two leaders of the 12. We're humble. We're going to lead well. We're going to lead this thing. Can we get the right and left seat? That's all I'm asking. Hey. Simple question. Hey, so they said to him, up. hey, can you give us something we're asking for? And Jesus is like, yeah, what is it? And then they asked the question. It's, it's really sad. Now, later in there, you notice how in verse 41, all the others were indignant. They can't believe they asked the question. No, that wasn't their sentiment. They can't believe they got ahead of them and asked the question. They were all thinking it, but they were scared. There's inside words and there's outside words. But these are sons of thunder, so they are firing rounds at Jesus. So they're getting ahead. They were mad that they didn't ask the question first. And now the left and right seat are taken because these bozos, you know, had asked the question. That's what's going on. So they said, give us what we ask. And Jesus said, well, what are you thinking, boys? Well, we're thinking about, we need... We're thinking about right and left status and a little bit of fame. Now put that against the backdrop. I'm going to Jerusalem to die a brutal death. Hey, can we get right and left seat? Total tone deaf. Co-thrones. Co-thrones. We'll share. We're not, we're not totally selfish. Not one brother over the other. No, total. We'll, we'll do co-throning. We'll do co-throning. That'll work. Give us our sinful heart's desire is basically what they're asking Jesus. And it's sinful ambition. This is not the right kind of ambition. This is not redeemed ambition at all. And aren't you glad Jesus doesn't give them? Aren't you glad sometimes that God doesn't answer your prayers to the affirmative? He answers every prayer you know, right? Yes, no, and wait. I look back sometimes at Facebook And I'm glad he didn't answer some prayers. I was dating that girl in high school and I'm thinking, yeah, you know what I'm saying? Like, you're kind of like, Oh, you know, you you ever done that? Got a little voyeurism. Come on. I know you had a bunch of liars. Come on. Yeah. I know you're doing that. You're like going back saying, is that guy still around? Oh, you know, it's a little crazy, right? You, you get a full picture. So you're glad that God didn't answer some prayers, but he answers every prayer. Right. And so he's not going to answer their request. And this is just a stubborn thing with these boys. They are full of ambition. But Jesus is going to teach them, right? Humble yourselves, James 4, 6, under the mighty hand of God. What we saw last week, 2 Corinthians 5, 2, 5 to 11. This this ambition has to be redeemed. They have to get their heads screwed on straight. Their hubris is throwing them off on tone, on timing. Everything about this conversation is off. It's the most blatant overreach I think I've ever seen. So what are you asking? They said, grant us to sit one on the right hand, one on the left, in your glory. So we're going to be co labor we're going to be co-glory. It's like a little mini trinity, you know, as you set up your kingdom. Folks, it's a fight of your life to kill your pride. It's the fight of my life to kill my pride. And at Christmas, Christmas should be ambition slaying. What God has done in coming for our sins and dying, it should slay ambition, the wrong kind of ambition. I don't want you to get rid of all your ambition and and be a bump on a log. I want you to be ambitious, but the right kind. Redeemed ambition, right? And this Christmas, we gotta humble our pride. The flesh is a monster. As you see manifested in these two boys, just misplaced, out of line, overreaching, arrogant. It just has a, a whiff of pride, right? It just it has a smell to it. It's like, come on, man, are we really doing this? Like you guys really asking this? This is crazy. And so Jesus said, Okay. You think you're up for the task? He asked him a couple questions. Number one, are you ready to drink my cup? What is he talking about? It's called the cup of suffering. Mentioned in Isaiah many times. Take the four verbs mocked, right? Spit, flogged, killed. You're ready for that? You're ready for that? The cup was always, as you know, an Old Testament symbol for, for judgment or wrath. Are you really, he's basically saying, are you willing to walk in my sandals because I'm coming as a suffering servant? That means you're gonna be co-suffering, not co-glorying, you're co-suffering. That should have astonished them. But he goes on and he says, are you ready to be experiencing my baptism? What is he talking about? A baptism by fire, Right? to be plunged or to immerse yourself, to take the big dive into suffering, not sprinkled, oh no, submerged in suffering, the baptism. In other words, he's saying, are you willing to be thrown into the deep end when you've never swam before? Right? What do they say? Look at verse, look at verse 39. And they said to him, Yeah, we're able. We're able. The sons of thunder are living up to their name. They're overconfident. They're type A's. And basically they say to Jesus, we've got this thing. They're so clueless, right? Like we're seeing it, we're reading back into the story and we're like, oh, that's unbridled ambition. That's selfish ambition, bro. You don't want to be doing that. They're not focused on the cross. They're focused on some royal fame and royal throne. He's saying, you really want to do this? Yeah, we got this. We're on it. It's mine. And listen, folks, it's a reminder to us when we think about ambition, there is no glory apart from suffering. That's the path, that's the kingdom mindset. Suffering is our calling card, right? It's an upside down kingdom. There are no rewards without a cost, right? If it's worth doing, it's going to cost you something and maybe everything, right? There are no free rides. We've said it to our kids and to our grandkids in this life, right? And the father is not gonna give out free positional status and you don't do anything? No way. When I'm leaving heaven as a second person of the Trinity and coming to die for you and you're gonna walk? Light. And so he says, okay. Verse 39. Then you get it. You shall drink of my cup and be baptized with my baptism. Welcome to team adversity. <laughs> and this is exactly what happened. Who was the first person ever martyred? James. There he is. John exiled, right? Died in AD 96. Shortly after writing the book of Revelation. Big talkers small livers, right? Big talk, but they got to live it out. And again, it's okay to have ambition. I want you to have ambition at Christmas. It's the right kind of ambition. It's redeemed ambition. And this kind of ambition, which is clearly in the passage of scripture, is not healthy ambition. It's not good. It's no bueno. It's not good for you. It's not good for your family. It's not good for your marriage. It's not good. You got to humble your pride. And either you choose to humble yourself or God will choose to humble you, right? That's the reality of it. So voluntarily, as Jesus voluntarily went to the cross, I'm asking you this question, voluntarily you humble yourself. I need to humble my pride, right? And then he says in verse 40, by the way, it's not even me to give to you. I'm on mission. My job is to do the will of the Father and to die for the sins of the world. The Father determines judgment, rewards, giftedness. The, you know, my role in the Trinity, I was born to die. The father will determine who gets gifts, who gets status, who gets rewards, et cetera, et cetera. There is coming a day for that. It's the father's call. It's not my call. We must learn that true greatness comes through humility and rescue that ambition, that selfish ambition. And, and, and get rid of the lust for fame. And get rid of the, the, the lust for position in this life. It just does not reflect your Savior. And so at Christmas, it's one of the hard lessons we, we have to learn. Is to rescue this ambition. And so, Advent, right, is an amazing gift. It's also an ambition-slaying gift. And third and final, it's an atoning gift. It's an atoning gift. It's an amazing gift. It's an ambition-killing gift. The third reality of this being this great gift is that it is this atoning gift. Well, you can see there. Verse 41, when the other 10 heard it, we've already made mention of their indignant. They cannot believe they asked the question. They can't believe they got out in front of them and asked the question. Um, they're, they're full of the same jealousy. They're jealous of them for asking the question. I mean, it's more, more piled on selfish ambition. Basically, they were outwitted and outplayed. So <laughs> They're indignant. They would rather bear a grudge against the other 10, the, other, the two guys than to bear a cross. And Jesus is saying, We're doing cross work here. It's about about dying to yourself. The whole team misses the point. And then he calls them in close. Look at it. And Jesus called them to himself. And he said to them, this is now game changing. This is atoning. A serving and suffering savior. And he says, you know, That those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. And the great ones exercise authority over them. He's basically saying the way the world leads and the way we lead in the kingdom, entirely different. The world is full of autocrats and hubris and actually prizes that. Christ's kingdom, not so much. The prize, the virtue is humility, right? Power and authority are not virtues of the kingdom of God. Humility is. We are different. And I love how he says it. It couldn't be any clearer. But it, look at verse 43. But it shall not be so among you. It's like he's stomping on pride. Now, this is not true of us. This is not what we're about. This is not the kingdom you serve. You can't have that kind of hubris and be a part of what I'm doing. But that's kind of the emphatic feel of the text. God's kingdom is upside down. Whoever wishes to be great among you shall be your servant. Look at it. And whoever wants to be first, okay, he's not condemning the desire to be first. We all have ambition, right? We want to lead well, right? It's okay. Then if you're going to do that, it's how you do it. That's what is the difference. That's what's game changing. Then you become a slave of all, the bondservant. You become slave of everyone. Whoever wishes to be first shall be slave. Dulos, third level, galley slave. The worst of the worst. Very undignified work, very indignified lifestyle. So you say, well, Brother Dan, how do I know that I've reached Dulos thinking? How do, I, how do I get there? I'll tell you, it's pretty simple. When someone treats you like a slave, how do you respond? When someone treats you like that, do you step back and bow up and say, hey, I'm from Applegate, man. You ever been in our valley? You know what I'm saying? I'm from Southern Oregon. Don't, we don't, you don't mess with Southern Oregon, no. You don't do that. No, you, you, you go, yeah, it's part of the deal. You're right. Because it's just like, it's an attitude. It's like every time I walk through the door, if I walk through that door, I know I'm the worst sinner in this room. I am. Paul said, I'm the chief of sinners. I'm not. I, so when you do something crazy, and I think maybe stupid, I'm like, well, I'm 10 more times stupid than Ross. But you know what I'm saying? Like I, I'm just like, yeah. How do you know when someone treats you like a slave? And how you respond will tell you if you're there. Do we wanna be recognized for our service? Or give until it hurts? Give and keep giving. Not looking for anybody to say anything because you're serving a Savior or serving a suffering Savior. You're not looking, and Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. And I'm telling you, that's why he said when you do your gifts, don't brag about your gifts. You don't go, hey, look at me, look at my offering, you know. You don't do that, right? He doesn't con- condemn the question. He condemns the path that they're on, right? He doesn't want them to think like that. And this has forever changed leadership. We're not like the Gentiles. We're not like the outsiders. We lead different in the church. And that doesn't just affect the church. That's how it affects my leadership in the marketplace, right? It affects everything you do, wherever you go, right? You're called to be servant of all. This is the preeminent virtue of humility and service. So why is Jesus hustling? He's out in front of them. Why is he hustling to Jerusalem? Look at it. Verse 45. For even the Son of Man. Did not come to be served. But to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. There's no glory without suffering. He's coming for a specific purpose. He said I'm coming to be the ransom. It was a word used for bail. To pay off someone's debt, right? He's basically saying, I'm going to pay off a bunch of prisoners debt. I never did anything wrong, but I'm going to pay off their debt. There's a debt of sin. Jesus paid the price for our redemption. That's atonement, right? Jesus made redemption possible by his death. So he set his face like a flint Towards Jerusalem, one-track mind, laser-focused, determined he's out in front of disciples because he wants to pay for your debt. This, folks, stomps on arrogance. I mean, he is determined for you. He loves you so much that he would do that. He needed to satisfy God's wrath and justice for our sin. They had to be paid This sinful debt. There had to be a solution for sin. And God came up with the solution. And Jesus, as we saw last week, voluntarily died for our sin. Nobody took his life. John 10, 17 and 18. He said, I laid it down freely. My choice, I go, determined to get to Jerusalem. I'm gonna hustle 25 miles. Folks, it's an indescribable gift, right? For even the Son of Man the arch example here, he didn't come to get, to take. He's not a taker, he's a giver. And he gave his life a ransom. The just, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for the unjust, for many. I guess I want to end by asking you the question, are you one of the many? You know, that's most important. How do you know? Do you know Jesus? Do you trust Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus? Do you ascend to Jesus? Do you commit to Jesus, giving your life to Christ? If you're not, I'm going to tell you, you're missing out on a great Christmas gift. You'd miss the whole point of admin. You're going to have fudge with marshmallows and nuts in it, and you're going to do all these crazy things in the next 7 to 8, 10 days. You're going to gain weight. You're going to be disgusting. You're going to love it. It's going to be a blast. But at the end of it, like, do you know Christ? We would hate here at Applegate for you to to hear and uh, make this the most amazing Christmas you've ever had, but yet not know Christ. You know Christmas is about Jesus came to be a ransom for many. Are you in the many? If not, we would encourage you to give your life to Jesus Christ. If you're in the many and many of you are in the many, I know then let's capture a couple of things let's let's get a little more awe in our lives let's get a little more astonished by the thickness and the density of the gospel right in the christmas story let's slay our ambition the wrong kind of ambition so add in good ambition get rid of exhale out bad ambition and let's thank jesus for his atoning work and substitution on the cross Well, there'll be more next week as we complete our series. It'll be December 24th. Bob will be covering the entire Bible in 30 minutes. Isn't that right, Bob? Is that what you said? Oh, just half. He's gonna do just half. Just the new covenant. Let's pray together. As we think about this text, as we think about Jesus' own words, his version of John 3, 16 here in Mark 10, 45. Father, We've sung, we've prayed, we've read scripture. Lord, if there's someone here that doesn't know Christ, we pray that they would give their lives to Jesus today. Young or old, doesn't matter. It'd be a humbling of pride. Lord, as we spend this next week, help us to be astonished, to be in awe, to to read our Bibles like as if we're reading them for the first time. Lord, we all struggle with ambition, the wrong kind of ambition. Help our ambition to be redeemed, not to be tone deaf and irresponsible like these two cats here, James and John. Help us to appreciate what the kingdom is really like. It's so different, it's so upside down, it's so paradoxical from the world. Lord, help us to be as a church to one another, servants and not lords and masters. We ask this in Christ's name.